The Mustard Tavern Keepers History of the Old World. Apologies for keeping you all waiting. I found both my pipe and a sachet of Six Frond, the finest pipeweed this side of the Abasco Mountains. Although, to be honest, that's not saying very much. Oh, and as Heinrich has finally reached the great ocean in his retelling of the tale of Marco Colombo, I felt it was time to break out the rum. This one's called Pirate's Flask. They distill it on fool's rocks out on the bay. This stuff will put some hairs in your chest, I can tell you. Ah, uh, you lasses needn't worry though. It's, a, it's just a figure of speech. Here, wait a cock. Where's Heinrich? Oh, emptying his bladder again. The man can certainly drink, but once that seal has been broken, the waters never stop flowing. Anyway, I brought some glasses, so feel free to help yourself to the rum. <sighs> now that hits the spot. Right, whilst we wait, and as we're at the point where we have finally reached the great ocean, this is as perfect an opportunity as any to talk about its history. Something that... As a salty sea dog myself, is very dear to my heart. From our fair city of Tabarro, through the deadly channels between the Fool's Rocks, out into the Tylean Sea, and then beyond the peninsula of Estalia and the shores of Araby, stretches out the great ocean. It is the yawning divide that separates the old world, Araby and the Southlands, from the new world of Nagaroth and Lustria with the mysterious islands of Ulthuan and Albion awkwardly sandwiched between the two. On its treacherous waters, you can find vessels from every seafaring race, in one form or another, as it is the lubricant that oils the cogs of many a society by facilitating trade, commerce, exploration and expansion. However, it also provides the means by which the slave trade continues to thrive. The nations can conduct wars both far and wide. Pirates and corsairs continue to increase in numbers and daring, with the most vulnerable in the remote places of the world being the ones who are being raided and exploited. And lastly, it is the conduit by which malignant diseases can spread across the globe, all but unchecked. The great ocean herself is also a most stern mistress. She will swiftly punish the foolhardy and the foolish with equal disdain, 
and she is something you should never, ever underestimate. For danger plies her waters, and death swims in her depths. We have already touched upon the menace posed by the pirates, corsairs and slavers of Araby, Norska and Nagaroth, but they are not the only villains on the waves. The varied seafaring vessels of chaos infest the seas with their corruption, as do the greenskins and even the thrice-becursed Skaven. On top of this, even the fleets of those we might consider to be paragons of order are no less a risk to the unwary, and equally as deadly as their more belligerent counterparts. The High Elves of Ulthwan, on their great crescent of an island in the very heart of the ocean, guard their shores with magic, mists and monsters in the north, and sail and sword in the south. The impervious iron ships of the dwarves have a shoot first and then shoot again policy whilst abroad, and those impressive and beautiful Bretonian galleons are built with but one purpose in mind. They're built for the kill, and they do so by thrusting themselves into the heart of their enemies and ripping it out. And finally, the great ships of the Empire are manned by the hardiest veterans on the ocean. Killing is both each man's livelihood and second nature to them, and, for enough coin, many of these lethal weapons can be turned on anyone, be they friend or foe. And it doesn't stop there either, for all these threats are just the ones that you can see. There are also ancient diluvian menaces just below the surface. We've all heard stories about sea monsters that hide in the deep dark places, but, and I will not go into it now, there are yet worse things that exist down there under the churning waves. However, let us leave talk of those horrors for a more appropriate time. Next, Gehemisnacht, perhaps. Now, many landlubbers view the world like a jigsaw with distinct parts that fit together with definite hard borders and a beginning and an end to every realm and province. We sailors do not. We see the world as a continuously flowing whole. There is no black and white for us, just an undulating spectrum of colour. However, most map makers do not share this view and have given specific regions of water bespoke names, even though they are really all one and the same. However, to give a nod of the cap to the naming conventions you're no doubt familiar with, you can envisage the great ocean as we see an inland lake, each fed by tributaries and rivers. The great ocean mingles its waters with, and is, I suppose you could say, fed by a number of smaller seas around its circumference. The most well-known of these are the Sea of Malice and the Sea of Chill near Nagaroth, the Sea of Serpents near Lustria, and the Sea of Claws, the Sea of Chaos, and our own Tylean Sea here in the Old World. The Great Ocean is also connected to the other two large oceans of the world at the southern ends of the continents. To the west 
it flows into the far sea at the tip of Lustria, and, to the east, it mingles with the Sea of Dread at the southern cape of the Southlands. Now, please cast your mind back to the tale of the Arabian explorer Ibn Jalaba, whom we were discussing only this afternoon, although it feels like weeks ago. Now, when my tutor and I found him cast adrift at sea, the only things aboard his boat, besides the man himself, were a number of large, ornately carved trunks. Each trunk had been made by the skinks of the hidden city of Zlatlan in the Southlands. And each trunk was the most peculiar thing. If you held any of them by their only handle, in a particular way, they would become weightless and could be moved with the slightest touch. But if you tried to lift them in any other way, they were all but immovable. Within each were all the notes, scrolls and charcoal rubbings that Ibn had made during his time in the city. One of the first volumes of this trove of knowledge that he shared with us concerned the origins of the great ocean. So it now seems like an appropriate point to discuss this. Back through the mists of time, the gods of the lizardmen, the old ones, came to our world. They were enigmatic entities from beyond the stars who each wielded immense power. They were creators, engineers and tinkerers and they looked upon the newly discovered world of ours and saw much potential. They decided that they would try to steer its destiny in a direction so that it would play its part in a mysterious great plan they had for all of creation. However, before they could attempt any of that, it was necessary to manipulate our world's climate and the geography of it so that it would be more comfortable for them. They settled in Lustria, it being the warmest part of the planet back then, as it is now. However, the rest of the world was much, much colder than it is now. The races of today did not exist at that point, and I will save discussion of their creation for another day. That said, the inhabitants of that time are not completely unfamiliar to us. The icy valleys and mountains were prowled by dragon ogres. The skies were dominated by dragons, and the seas by their kin, the mere worms. The old ones began by spawning several generations of slan mage priests, skink artisans, and massive croxigore to aid them in founding the first temple cities, as we discussed in depth at the end of the first expedition of Ibn Jalaba. They used the massive amounts of power they garnered by doing this to alter the place of the entire world in the heavens, bringing it closer to the warmth of the sun and thus heating up the planet. The warming of the planet slowly sent the dragons into hibernation and the mereworms into the depths of the seas. They also reforged the continents at this point again in accordance with the patterns of the ancient prophecy of their race. It was this last act of ripping apart the great continent that then dominated the globe that gave birth to the great ocean and the smaller continents 
upon which we now all reside. The Southlands was moved across the globe, and the evidence that Lustria and the Southlands were once joined is also borne out by the fact that there are many identical species of flora and fauna indigenous to both, despite the massive body of water between them. This act also separated many of the temple cities from each other, but in that utopian time, physical distances meant little, as communication between the slan mage priests in each of the cities was both direct and instantaneous, and so distance was of no concern. However, all that changed after the Great Catastrophe, something we shall talk about in depth in the near future. Bloody hell, that's half the rum gone already. You lads and lasses can't half drink. Must be that fine dwarf ale you got back in the guild's lodge. All up in flames now, of course. Eh, or is it? Now, that's something worth investigating. Ah, what's that sound from outside the chamber door? I do believe that those are the footsteps of Heinrich Lewin. Has he uh, finally returned? Well, if so, we can get back to the uh, tale of Marco Colombo. <gasps> Quick, hide the rum. I think it's best if he sticks to the ale. 